And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I met David Litt when he was a young speechwriter at the White House in charge of the White House Correspondent Association Dinner speech for the president, which is essentially a comedy routine. He was uh, assembling jokes from everywhere, including some of mine, and, and, and taking some of his and melding it into uh, a hilarious monologue for the president. Now David has written a book called Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years, which is a hilarious and moving uh, memoir about his arc from a a newbie field organizer for Obama in Ohio in 2008 uh, through his years in the White House. It's a great read, and we had a great conversation about it the other day when he visited the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. David Litt, it's good to, to see you again. It's good to see you too. I, uh, I had a good time reading your book, uh, uh, because I relived uh, some history myself in that book, and it kind of reminded me, you know, I was on, I was at a different place in that 2008 campaign than yeah. you were, <laughs> just a little bit, yes. But uh, but it was actually guys like you and gals like you who uh, kind of kept us going and kept us inspired when uh, that thing. There were, there were several moments there when the uh, savants in Washington were writing us out of the script, and you could go to Iowa, a place like Iowa, and see a whole bunch of kids working their hearts out, and it was inspiring. But I, we will get there. First, I want to get, uh, talk a little bit about you, and uh, uh, you had, uh, I would say, would privilege be fair enough? But certainly, uh, by New York City standards, you had a pretty normal uh, upbringing. So uh, talk a little bit about growing up. Yeah, the way I put it in my book is that I have the somewhat typical story in New York City where my great-grandparents fled Eastern Europe for to avoid being persecuted because they were Jewish, and my parents fled New York City in the summers for their country house. So uh, it's kind of that story we were not like uh you know i would say fairly typical in that new york bubble you know that kind of sheltered new york private school universe but that in and of itself to, to put Where'd it this you, way where did you go to school yeah, i was gonna say i went to high school at um, dalton which was the inspiration for gossip girl so i was not gossip girl <laughs> but uh this was we, we periodically the new york times would come they were looking for a story about like sort of unpleasant rich kids in new york and so they would just lurk outside the outside the school gates we had to be told you know don't don't talk to reporters so it was definitely um one of those things you you know no matter where you grow up you think that's everywhere that's how you're growing did you up. go through private schools your whole uh i did yeah this is like i have a terrible rags to riches uh politician story you know what i mean like so many of the stories for people that i'm sure you've worked on or uh not just president obama but people i've written speeches for is kind of about humble upbringings. And I felt like when I wrote about my own in, in the book, I didn't want to pretend that uh, this was a, you know, how did, how did somebody... Be hard went, to do. Exactly. How did someone who went from... Uh, you, you could know, write fiction. Right. That's true. Uh, <laughs> you know, how did someone who went from uh, New York private schools to an Ivy League university ever end up at the White House? It's like, mm -hmm. I don't know. Never happened before. It's never happened before. Unbelievable. But I, I thought it was important to acknowledge. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I went to the public schools in New York, so I was aware of Dalton mm -hmm. uh, from Stuyvesant High School where I went. But uh, I took the Stuyvesant test, I think, and I, I didn't end up going because they didn't have a wrestling team. And I uh, I threw a fit because I was a wrestler in, in middle school. I'm just starting by making all of your listeners really not like me. And then um, we'll go from there. No, I think and I'll earn them my, slowly. If, over if the this course were of actually this on TV, my, my listeners would it wouldn't be so much that they didn't like you, but they would look at you and say, what? Wrestling? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah, that was when I was like uh, when I was in David's like, a David's grade. a prodigious intellect, but he's not a large man. <laughs> no, well, that's whatsoever. the good thing about wrestling is that it's weight classes. So you, yes. do, you can be I mean, I was in the 112 pound weight class when I was a freshman in high school. And you kick I, some 112-pound ass. Exactly. Huh? I was not going to be in the 112-pound you know, <laughs> basketball uh, team. They didn't have one of those. But, um, and one of the, the other things that I thought when I look back on my own 
upbringing that it was important and part of I think where I came from is that it was very much ingrained in me that we would wouldn't have used the word privilege because that didn't really exist mm-hmm. in that way but we people my parents would have said we're very lucky um and it's what your folks do uh my dad was a doctor or mm-hmm. and uh and my mom was a lawyer mm-hmm. um so sort of very classic you know what the right. the Jewish immigrants they get here their kids are the first in the family to go to college then those their kids become the doctor and the lawyer and marry each other um so no no surprises there but I think there was a sense that one of the things that you have to believe if you've gotten to live that story in your own family is that there's some luck involved in this and that you have a responsibility to help other people and other families live that story too. So, so you think, guys talk about politics at home? We did. I mean, I don't know uh, too much about your – well, I, I guess I do from reading your book that it was probably somewhat similar in that – in certain New York families, talking about current events is like talking about sports in mm-hmm. other parts of the country. And so we never discussed, like, the Jets or the Giants. And, you know, I, I think I converted my dad from Mets fandom to Yankees fandom, but it wasn't very hard because he wasn't a big fan of anybody. Uh, but when it came to politics, you just kind of talked about it. It was this thing that people discussed. Yeah. No, in my family, we uh, we uh, talked about the Jets and the Giants. But we we talked about politics, too, but... My dad, who was an immigrant himself, uh, was uh, he came here and learned how to play baseball before I think he learned how to speak English. And he actually was an all-city pitcher uh, and got a college scholarship for baseball uh, after arriving here when he was twelve. So he was into it. So we did talk a lot about a lot about sports. But uh, and then what about humor? Uh, you uh, you're a uh, you're a funny guy. And uh, you've actually made a career of it. Uh, were you were you always the class cut up? Was humor something that came easily to you? No, not at all. I think most people who meet me and I say I've written jokes, they they give me a look, you know, like really. <laughs> and I it's gener- like the wrestling thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. They're like jokes, wrestling, just all sorts of looks that I'm getting. Uh-huh. But I, I do think there was, um, you know, I was always a very serious kid, actually. And then I think I wasn't uh, rebellious enough to rebel in any of the traditional ways. Like I didn't drink in high school, but I did start doing stand-up comedy because that was something I probably in the back of my mind knew that my parents wouldn't really comprehend. And so I remember. I was on... There's a yeah. great Jerry Seinfeld. I just watched Seinfeld's special. I haven't seen it yet. And he does a bit about coming out to his parents as a comedian. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. But. Well, it is. It's a sort of, uh, I guess for me, it was like a very low-level way of disappointing one's parents, right? Like, <laughs> you're still a good kid, but you do this weird thing, that, <laughs> and you force them to chaperone you to, to comedy clubs, which they were very nice about, I will say. Like, they were, you know, my, my mom would take me two comedy nights so I could do my five minutes at on a Tuesday you know, on a Tuesday night then I'd go home and do my homework and go to high school the next day but um, so so in this special I'm, I'm fascinated by the co- comic mind right in this special in this piece he did on Netflix uh, Seinfeld said the weird thing is I could stand up and talk to all of you but I couldn't talk to any of you hmm. In other words, he felt comfortable on the stage, but not comfortable having a conversation with uh, with people. When you were up on the stage, now were you a very chatty guy off stage? I mean, or did you find that this was an escape to be up there in front of people? It's. I guess it was a little bit that I felt. I feel comfortable on stage, and I feel comfortable. I hope I feel comfortable in conversation because we're we're having one right now. Yeah, and I think I'm it's going counting fine. on it. Yeah, um, you're like I feel like there's a this little bit of a leading question of like, is this conversation <laughs> going to go terribly? I hope. Not. <laughs> but um, to me, I the the group the size of a group that I'm always not not comfortable in is about twenty people. I don't know if you found this working with politicians who have sort of a performance aspect of their mm-hmm. job as well that. It, some people are good in large crowds some people are good one-on-one and i feel like some people are, can work a room and when i was a field organizer for example and i know i'm skipping a tiny bit ahead but yeah. when i was a field organizer and there were 20 people at a house party i would always feel very uncomfortable when we do a one-on-one meeting i felt like i knew what i was doing when uh, joe biden came to worcester where i worked and it was my job to do the field pitch for i think we had uh, 4,500 people at that rally 
I felt like, oh, I can do this. I'm I'm actually pretty comfortable doing that. But in in that room of twenty people, it it just didn't. It's not where I feel at home. And I think everybody kind of has their the right size number of people that they feel like I understand what I'm supposed to do here. And then a different number, you say I, I don't really get it. So you go off to Yale and you continue to you you were performing and improv and you were writing for the humor magazine there. So this was something that you. That was a, a consistent theme. Yeah, I went to Yale, and my freshman year, within a few months, there was a stand-up night, and I did stand-up, and I totally bombed and decided maybe I'm not as into stand-up as I thought. And uh, the, the the way I put it in the book about some, another moment in my life was sort of said, it can be hard to tell the difference between the absence of talent and the presence of destiny. <laughs> so that was the end of my stand-up career. And I started doing improv with uh, a group called the Yale Exit Players, and we would do sort of short-form improv games. And that was one of my main focuses during my time at college. And the other was the humor magazine that I worked on, which was called the Yale Record, and was kind of our – like the Harvard has the Lampoon, and it's a it's a well-known institution. And then there was the Yale Record, which was kind of a uh, our, our upstart version of that. So this was, of course – when you weren't deeply absorbed in your scholastic uh, pursuits, right? Naturally. <laughs> yes. So uh, you worked uh, in 2004. I guess you must have been still in your teens, is that right, for John Kerry? Yeah, I was an intern in the finance office in 2004 in New York. So they let you, in second semester senior year, they knew that you weren't going to pay any attention in class anyway. So if you could find a worthwhile internship, they would let you do that. And at the time, I was... I wouldn't say I was fascinated by politics, but I grew up in that environment where you're constantly told you can change the world and felt like, okay, I should do that. And <laughs> I'll, so I'll intern with John Kerry. I mean, to give you a sense of how long ago that was, my, my brilliant idea was a Yahoo group for jo- for high school students who supported John Kerry. And somehow this Yahoo group was going to swing the election and it never really got off the ground. But they were like, well, you could put data into spreadsheets. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. So that's, uh, Although, that's you know, Howard Dean it. had a similar idea that year and did, went pretty far with it, <laughs> that's using true. social media to, to uh, galvanize young people. Yeah, I think he probably had thought it through a little bit more, <laughs> or at, least, at least whoever he had doing it. But he didn't him. have to go to class. So. That, that's true. Yeah. And, he, and he was, uh, you know, not, not 18 at the time or 17 <laughs> at the time. Uh, but you wrote that, that, that you were somewhat disillusioned by that experience. Why? The way that There's, I— By the way, yeah. disillusionment runs through your— this this right. notion of disillusionment and reflection is something that runs through this entire book. Absolutely. I mean, to me, there's all these Washington books that say you're either sort of naive and idealistic or you're cynical and realistic and disillusioned. And I didn't think that was a fair spectrum that we should be thinking about because in my mind, we're all a little disillusioned by the time you've been in the real world for a little bit or you're one of those people that – there's something grating about someone who's never become even a little bit disillusioned. The question becomes, how do you deal with disillusionment, which is part of life, and still have those ideals that got you involved in the first place? So I think that was the way that I thought about disillusionment in the book. And the But the closest I came to sort of classic DC book disillusionment, where you say, this whole thing is stupid and I don't want to deal with it, was probably my freshman year of college, because I just, I always felt like John Kerry would have made a better president than George W. Bush, for sure. But he never seemed to say so in a way that really had confidence to it. It seemed like he was always thinking in the back of his head, does this sound good? It sounded like me in front of 20 people, where it was kind of like, is this okay? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? The the way I put it in the book is it was like watching an entire campaign spent arguing that the most talented Beatle is Ringo Starr. Like, (laughs) there's, there's never a real confidence there. There's always a sense of like, it's John, it's Paul, isn't it? And it made it wasn't that we lost. Um, it was that I felt like we were so afraid to lose that we didn't give ourselves a, a real chance to win. And even more than that, um, you know, sometimes I mean, I, I think about 2010 where I did some volunteering at the DNC, or 2014 where I was in the White House and writing some of the speeches for POTUS, and we lost. President but I Obama, never yeah. for President Obama. Um, but I, I never felt like this is looking back. It wasn't worth doing that. We didn't give it everything we had. And, and that in 2004, it did feel like that. And I kind of took that hard turn where I said, you know what, 
this stuff is this kind of change the world stuff is stupid. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get better at making fun of things and worse at changing them. You know, your critique as an 18 or 19 year old of Kerry was the one that I think most of us shared, which is that he, he the thing about running for president is if you're afraid to lose, you'll almost certainly not win uh, because you tend to become too cautious. Uh, you tend to, and and it, it leads to a sense of inauthenticity. I think there was a little of that in the Clinton campaign this year. Saw it with Gore in two thousand. I think you were, you probably were in long pants by then, but not <laughs> so much so. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I remember the Gore Bush election. I remember waking up the next day and being very confused that they didn't have a president yet because I, I was in. Yeah, that was eighth grade, so yeah. or ninth grade. Um, by the way, I want to commend you for writing your memoir. Uh, by the time you're 30, because you want to get that out of the way. I think Obama <laughs> did that too. It's you know, why have that hanging over your head for your whole life? Right, that's right. I, you know, I feel like I have lots of wisdom to dispense at 30. So, <laughs> well, yeah, it's. Uh, I will say it is worth noting. My, mine, just to be completely fair, was substantially shorter than yours. So it, that's true, um, and and it has, has a that's lot true. more and, uh, and, trivial and fun prob- stuff. Probably, yeah. probably to the delight of your readers <laughs> that may as be. well, and and to the frustration of mine well it's it's funny this is a uh, the kind of book where people have said oh i got through it in a day and i feel like with some books that's an insult and but i'm i'm comfortable with that <laughs> well it means they bought the book so that's one good that's thing. also good um so you you turned from uh john Kerry to the onion uh, you found your way to the onion and so that was going to be your path for a while uh but you so you spent a summer writing for them that didn't exactly work out is that that's right. Fair to say. That's very fair to say. I enjoyed working at The Onion, but I was not good at that specific style of writing that they trained their writers to do. So they're all about the headlines and sending in dozens and dozens of possible headlines. And I had about three headlines in there over the course of a year. Well, while I was an intern, I had about none. And then for the next year, I would pitch headlines as a freelancer and then uh, they wouldn't go anywhere. And then gradually, as I started to get more into the Obama campaign, um, all of my headlines were about exhausted campaign volunteers, and they weren't very funny at all. <laughs> so it, there was kind of this point after that internship where I saw the writing on the wall and said, you know, headline writing for The Onion sounds amazing, but it's not. Uh, this does not seem to be my thing. And as with the stand-up saying, well, you know, maybe this isn't actually my – maybe this isn't so great after all. Maybe I'll do something else. And you did – what any sensible person would after bombing it at the Onion, and you decided that you would join the CIA. Well, those are always linked in my mind. You know, it's either <laughs> the Onion or the CIA. Yes. Um, I, I applied to So join what the- made you decide to? Well, it was a sense of, like every college senior, I was thinking, what can I be doing next year where when people ask me what I'm doing, I don't have to wonder whether it's worthwhile. And so I figured, you know, if I got together with my friends from college and they said, well, you know, I'm in law school, I'm in medical school. And I said, well, I uh, just got bin Laden with the CIA, then that would be a no one would question whether or not that was a good decision. Yeah, Yeah, it's like this will be they're going to buy me a beer. And I I do think it was just that sense of this seems irrefutably useful. Um, And so I not I, I don't think I ever thought, why would I be the person who would be like the bin Laden catching one Um, that never that question never crossed my mind. Uh, I, and I don't know uh, – my CIA interview, because it got cut short, I don't know whether what they would have said about that. I suspect that they would not have put me on the bin Laden catching team, which seems to have done fine without Unless me. Unless they learned about the wrestling background. <laughs> That's right. That could uh, like, you know, we need someone who, from the 112-pound weight class <laughs> to join the bin Laden Because bin Laden team. would never have suspected a 112-pound wrestler as the guy who was going to do him in. You never do. So – but you – didn't make it to the CIA for uh, reasons of uh, recreational activities that disqualified you. Right. I started the interview, and my interviewer was very chipper, sounded very all-American, and said, well, you know, just to kick things off, have we, have you ever used illegal substances <laughs> in the last year? And I thought about lying to the CIA, and I still wonder whether what they were looking for was someone who would lie to the CIA. But I decided this is not worth it. Uh, you know, these people could probably assassinate me, so I will just tell them the truth. And I said I had used, I had smoked weed about two months earlier for uh, on my 21st birthday party. And immediately my interviewer switched tones and said, well, you know, we like people who break rules, but, uh, you know, there's, legally we can't continue this interview. 
But you know, you're right. Probably uh, they may have been looking for someone who could keep a secret. Right. And I, I don't know. And I felt I had that moment where I was like, if I lied to the CIA right now, maybe this is the start of a you know beautiful CIA career. <laughs> But also maybe it's the thing that really uh, I, I end up regretting when I'm you know on the run. So uh, <laughs> I, I didn't want to risk it. So you 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 drop back into politics and you had kind of an epiphany, and that epiphany happened on an airplane on January third of two thousand and eight. Uh, I remember the day very I'd well. Yeah. So what what happened? So I was on a plane. We were flying into JFK, and this Where was... Where were you flying from? We were flying from Salt Lake City. I had just gone skiing. And uh, we were flying into JFK, and the this was like free in-flight cables heyday. So we were watching the, the cable, or I was, and I was flipping around, and there was nothing on any of the ESPNs. And so I turned on CNN, and then Senator Obama was delivering. He was maybe 30 seconds from taking the podium to deliver his victory speech after the Iowa caucuses. And, I mean, within 30 seconds of watching that speech, I just, I mean, it's funny because I, I thought about this the way you titled your book, Believer. I mean, it was like, it was not that I decided that I wanted to be part of this thing. It was about 30 seconds after I started watching this speech, I believed in it. And I can't really explain it. Yeah. Well, that was a powerfully, powerfully emotional night. I mean, uh, you, you, you've you read my book, but that was the purest night of joy that I've ever felt in politics, more than the night he won the presidency or any other, because of the effort that went into winning it and all those times we would count out and the sort of improbable nature uh, of the victory. I mean, here was this black guy who had just won a the caucuses in a state that was almost entirely white. So it said something not just about him, but about us that I thought uh, was, and obviously it touched you uh, as well. So you became an instant adherent to this, uh, to the campaign, so much so that it ended up costing you a relationship with your girlfriend. Well, my my sort of kind of girlfriend in that, in that college way, uh, I had been involved, I guess, with uh, a young woman, and we didn't agree about everything, but that didn't seem like a problem, and then suddenly the primaries came up, and she was undecided until the last minute, and she ended up voting for Hillary, which, in theory, I was totally fine with. I mean, I certainly would have voted for Hillary Clinton in the general and uh, been perfectly supportive of her as a candidate if she had won. Um, but in practice, I sort of reacted as if we were at dinner and my sort of kind of girlfriend had just casually ordered human flesh. (laughs) This was totally unacceptable. And I I was about as, uh, um, uh, condescending and not understanding about her choice as you might, uh, expect from a 21 year old who suddenly decided that they know, they know the path forward. And so that uh, relationship— She didn't appreciate that very much. No, I don't think so. I don't think I would have appreciated it if, if the shoe was on the other foot. So that um, sort of kind of relationship fizzled out fairly quickly after that. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with David Litt. Then you had a, another experience, and I have to bring it up just because it's a great little anecdote in the book— Talk about your experience in driving from college to Rhode Island uh, for the Rhode Island primary and also your trip back. So uh, around the time that this first sort of kind of relationship died out, I had a a huge crush on this other young woman uh, who I call Amy in the book. and To protect her reputation. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. So – and I – I mean, she was paid me no interest for totally understandable reasons, I and mean, she had plenty of choices. But it turned out that she was also she caught the Obama bug too, and so I saw an in. And so the day of the Rhode Island primary, which was March fourth, maybe so one early March, I said, "Hey, do you want to go to Rhode Island at the last minute, and we'll knock on doors in Providence?" And she had rejected basically every other offer that I had. Um, and this one, she said, yeah, that sounds good. So I borrowed my roommate's car without asking my roommate. And 
we drove up. I think that's called theft. Well, it's called it's called uh, aggravated borrowing. I think. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, it, one, uh, I think upon the return, it sort of maybe. Uh, well, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, one of the few people, uh, friends of mine from college, I haven't heard from since then is my former roommate. So, uh, well, she may agree with you. Um, I so we drove well, to Providence. Uh, it became very clear very early on that Rhode Island was not going for Obama. No, he got. Thumped by Hillary in Rhode Island. Yeah, we 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 got beat pretty bad there. But it it still was this kind of giddy, unprecedented moment where it just everything about the idea of dropping everything and driving. You know, it's New England, so driving across state lines isn't that hard. But still, like driving to a whole new place and being part of this movement and the generosity that people felt toward us, even if they weren't voting for Obama, but this sense that just seeing us there made them feel better about America in some way. And it made us feel better about America in some way. It just felt like we were on the cusp of something incredible. And so on on the way back, I was sort of thought about trying to work up the courage to try to lean in for a kiss or something like that. And then uh, instead, what I said was, hey, do you want to drive back to New Haven naked? And to be fair, I was not new to streaking. It's not like this had never crossed either of our minds, but I was new to naked driving, as was she, to my knowledge. Um, and in in the book, the way I describe it is it just seemed like the Barack Obama of propositions, like what you were saying about how unimaginable it is that he was an African-American man who could win in a state that was predominantly white. Uh, it was similarly unimaginable that I could ask someone, do you want to drive back so to New It seems to like New the Haven perfect naked? analogy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was this moment of feeling like we're just part of this new and exciting and at least in my mind, better thing. And uh, so we did. We drove. Uh, we drove. We did, it wasn't a straight shot. At one point, we veered over and tried to break into the Mystic Aquarium, which is a small aquarium in Connecticut, which made a lot of sense at the time. Now, were you naked when you're trying to break into the aquarium? We well, we were planning it, and then a security guard came over, and so we sort of threw on underwear. And I will say, in a weird way, the only thing more embarrassing than being naked in a car is being in your underwear in a car. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and so we we said something, and I don't. I've know. not tried either of these yeah. things, so I'm taking your word. I for I mean, it. you know, I think I, I I think you can trust me on this one. Yeah, no, I I, I totally do. And uh, we we left very quickly after that, and made. But you know, once we got back on the highway, true to our agreement, we figured out a way to strip down and finished our our ride naked. Um, and had cars pass by when this was going on? Or? There were some. I had to explain this to my dad. He was asking me about this yesterday, actually. Uh, which is a read the book, huh? Yeah, he read the book, and yeah. like, there's things you're like, oh yeah, you're gonna read that part too. Didn't think about that. <laughs> I should have given him a redacted version. Yes, exactly. Um, and as uh, an old as any old CIA <laughs> person would. Exactly. Yeah. So he, uh, as I as I told him, yeah, we were passed by some cars. We were in the left lane, so uh, we were mostly passing. And then it was late at night, so it wasn't like bumper to bumper traffic on 95 or 81. I forget which highway we were on. Nonetheless. Uh, yeah, well, there were some moments when we, you know, people would get a glimpse of what was going on and sort of do a double take, <laughs> and we'd try to speed past them. So you, uh, w- when you graduated, you headed out to Ohio. Um, you didn't have a job so much as you were volunteering. You were a, 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 a Obama fellow, which you pointed out in the book was uh, the title that you got in exchange for working. Uh, 24 hours, seven days a week for nothing. Exactly. I was an indentured servant, but we didn't, we called it something fancier than that. Yeah. And it was great though. I mean, I, it, it was lucky we started this talking a little bit about privilege. Not everybody can go out and, you know, follow their campaign sort of uh, instinct for no money and afford to do that. But I, I could. And it was an amazing experience. I remember uh, we were, for some reason, in the one region of Ohio, in Canton, Ohio, and nobody had hired any uh, regional field director for the campaign. So there were five of us organizing fellows, and we didn't have a boss. So we just kind of totally went off the grid. We stopped dialing into conference calls, and we l- tried to lease office space that didn't make any sense because there was no air conditioning in summer. And we didn't have any furniture in our office, and we turned the back room. We were so exhausted that the back room just became a rotating nap room. 
so that we could keep going. And eventually they did send uh, Jen Brown, who then went on to be the field director for Ohio for Mm -hmm. the president's campaign in 2012. And she sort of came and said, what are you guys doing here? And whipped us into shape a little bit. But it was was this almost like... um, kind of uh, like a Lost Boys feeling. I mean, you know, both both genders, but that feeling of like, there's no grownups, and so we're just going to figure this thing out. And there was something, it was nice to have someone who came in and told us what made sense, but it was also, it's really hard to describe just how possible everything seemed back then. I mean, it was, there was so much pressure. And, I recall. Yeah. Well, and, and it was, um, yeah, and it, one of the things that, I wonder, uh, I hope you, it seems like you did, that you kind of felt from, you know, the upper echelon of the campaign was this, uh, how strange it was, but how magical it was for those of us who were kind of discovering politics in a real way for the first time. Listen, uh, when uh, when I started, uh, when we started uh, the campaign, you know, I had been a kid, uh, a teenager when Bobby Kennedy ran for president, and I told uh, then Senator Obama, that w- there had not been a genuinely idealistic campaign for president since that time that really galvanized uh, people, and particularly young people, to believe that uh, uh, that we could actually do things together to change the world for the better. And uh, and he had the opportunity to do that, and uh, you know, but to see it happen was incredibly gratifying. I, I mean, uh, all of us felt it. He felt it. Um, it. It was extraordinary. One of the one of the challenges, uh, and you know, I, I, I want to talk to you about sort of election night. But then, one of the challenges we felt about uh, about it all was how do you, knowing that the world is complicated and challenges are difficult, and we were going to run into all kinds of obstacles. Um, did we run the risk of creating disillusionment because the reality of changing the world is harder and grittier and uh, less um, uh, and more laborious than uh, than you know than what you would hope? And so we always, you know, we felt at at once great about the idealism that was spurred by the campaign, but also responsible <laughs> for all the uh, idealistic young people who who then uh, would march forward and, and want to see all of that change happen and happen quickly. But we'll get to that because we talked about disillusionment before, and you went through periods of that. Mm-hmm. Um, November 4th, 2008, uh, well, before we do that, you, you told one story that I, I don't want to lose uh, about a woman you called Wendy A. in Ohio, uh, who was a, a worker uh, in your in your operation, a volunteer, I guess, uh, who had a slipped disc and couldn't. You said she she wasn't comfortable standing, she wasn't com- comfortable sitting, so she just paced around the headquarters making her calls and you tried to get her to rest and she wouldn't rest. And what did she tell you? Well, and I will say in the entire five months I was in Worcester, Ohio, I never told anyone to stop making calls. I was not one of the field organizers that is everybody's friend. I was very much the, you know, let's hit our general Patton. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this was, I, you could see how much she was hurting that every step she took, every phone call she made, she was just in agony. And finally I cracked and I said, you know, you don't have to be here. And she said, no, I do have to be here because if I don't make these calls, President Obama's not going to, or Obama's not going to get elected and I'm not going to get the health care that I need to get better. And that was one of those moments where it suddenly makes it a lot easier to work 24-7 toward a goal like that when you hear someone say that. And one of the things that I thought was special for me was even though I was incredibly new to politics, watching all these people come into our office and discover their own agency. Um, I also talk in the book about somebody, uh, I forget the pseudonym I used, but she came in to get a yard sign and said, that's all I want. I don't want to do anything beyond a yard sign. I'm not a campaign person. And three months later, she was a neighborhood team leader in Worcester, and she was, for all intents and purposes, a field organizer. She had her own team of volunteers that she was managing. And she met another, through another volunteer, she found a job, and it's a job she still holds today. So 
both on the personal level and the political level, being part of this reawakening in a community, was it was incredible. And all of these folks, and you and people multiplied by uh, uh, millions, hundreds of thousands, millions across the country, uh, really were sort of the backbone of uh, this uh, insurgency, which is what it, it was. What were you, where were you on November 4th, uh, 2008? Were you in, in Worcester, yeah, no, uh, Ohio? November 4th, 2008, I was in our field office. During the day, um, I was in the boiler room, which was a, a fancy way of saying a volunteer's living room that they weren't using. And we had been told that for an organizer, the hallmark of a good election day is that you're really bored. And so by that standard, things went great. Uh, I had absolutely nothing to do all day except sit and stress and try not to read any of the news that was coming in. And then that night, I went to our office on uh, Market Street and was there with maybe 60 or 70 volunteers watching on this very, very old television that was owned by the local Democratic Party. And it was interesting because this was not Manhattan or Los Angeles or Chicago where millions of people celebrated when Obama won. This was a county that went, even in a good year for Democrats, a great year for Democrats, went 60-40 for McCain. So you knew that there was this celebration taking place inside, but also that a lot of the stuff that had been stirred up on the campaign wasn't going away. I mean, I remember people would c- come by our headquarters and just yell at us for the next few days. When you say stirred up, you're talking about race? Race, and not just race. I think a, a sense of uh, this idea that there's a real America and that it's being threatened by others and that it's our job to defend real America from these other people. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, I would have been lumped in with the other people because I was working for Obama, because I was a Democrat. Um, so race was absolutely a part of it, but there were yeah. so many things. You could have been lumped in because you went to the Dalton School in Yale. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure if the people had known that, I would have been in many ways. <laughs> and so I think there was a, a You wisely that, didn't share that. Yeah. Well, I did. I remember very clearly one of... What, this was one of our volunteers. He was half pulling my leg in a way that like midwestern sense of humor i feel like is different than a new york sense of humor but he was half pulling my leg but he said so you're from manhattan huh and i said yeah and he said so are you a vegetarian i said <laughs> no and he said oh so are you gay i was like no i'm a i'm a straight carnivore but you know he was like there was a little little humor to that and a little bit like you're not from here are you so um but i one of the the great things to me about field organizing and about the campaign was that you found these bridges that kind of built themselves. So it wasn't just a campaign talking about unity. It was also creating unity Mm -hmm. in the process. And I think that's so important that it's not just, you know, uh, it wasn't just about change. It was change. And it made it a lot easier for people like me to believe because you could see it happening all around you. And did you, what, what were you thinking? What was your group thinking when you watched the scenes from Grant Park? You know, I honestly don't remember because I was so tired. The main <laughs> yeah. thing that I remember was watching uh, a woman who was named Linda, who um, I had been staying with, and she was she had been part of Democratic Party politics in Wayne County, Ohio, forever, still is, and was a lifetime member of the NAACP, even though she's white. And I just remember watching her cry. And this, because, you know, for me to have said at the time, you know, I never imagined a African-American president. Well, that doesn't mean that much. You know, I was 22 mm-hmm. years old, so, okay. But for her, I mean, when she said, I don't know that I'll ever see a black president in my lifetime, that meant a lot more. And and realizing that this thing she never thought would happen was happening and that she had been a part of it, uh, you know, it was, it was that sense of accomplishment, not just of, of how special... Barack Obama was, but how special we all were. Mm. And that was my, I remember that even from going to rallies in the 2008 campaign where I would watch, you know, a speech, I saw one or two that um, the candidate, you know, then Senator Obama gave, that when he was done, you didn't get the sense that he was great as much as you got the sense that we were great. Well, that was what Yes, We Can was all about. The we was an important part of that. Right. And, And the we... The distinction, I think, between the we that sort of says the we, the supporters of this candidate, and the we, all of us. You know, yes. I mean, mm-hmm. my, my uh, relationship with a Hillary supporter that didn't go so well aside, I think in theory, at least, there was the sense that we encompassed 
not just the people who agreed with us already, but the people who we felt like we may not agree with now, but we have a lot in common, even if we don't always know it. And after that, you, like a lot of young organizers, headed to Washington, your presumption being that you would now become one of the change makers, the the uh, invading army of idealists who were going to change Washington. But it, it wasn't that simple. Uh, yeah, I moved to Washington for two reasons. One of them was that I first moved back in with my parents, and I didn't wanted to get out of living in my childhood bedroom. So suddenly Washington began to seem very appealing. <laughs> and the other reason was just a broad sense of hope and change. You know, I mean, President Obama was there. That's where this movement was. And so I thought I should be there. I didn't have a plan. And it's, I certainly didn't show up expecting to get a job in the White House or a job writing speeches or anything like that. Secretary of Defense. Yeah, I figured or, I would be the Secretary of Defense. You know. um, but I, yeah, I moved there and I figured that there would sort of be a place for me somewhere in Obama's Washington. And uh, it, it became clear the longer I was there that because there were so many thousands of organizers who started on the campaign and, and so many people who started before I did. I mean, when you talk about Iowa, you know, I was not uh, one of the people who believed when this was an impossible long shot. I was, the way I describe it is I was sort of into Barack Obama at exactly the moment he was cool. So there were... Uh, there were not nearly as many jobs in the administration or in the sort of broader Washington apparatus that as there were organizers. And so it, it became a, you know, I ended up at a crisis communications firm where I was probably the worst intern in Washington, D.C. for a fairly long time, almost got fired as an intern. You should explain, what is a crisis communications firm? A crisis, I mean, even now, I don't know that I could fully define that. A crisis communications firm is basically your company does something at least in my experience, your company does something really bad. In theory, a crisis communications firm helps you handle the aftermath and helps you apologize and uh, reform your behavior so it doesn't happen again. So charging $700 for an EpiPen or something like Something that. along those lines. Mm -hmm. I mean, we the, the firm that I worked for, when I interviewed, they said, you know, we work for a crib company and one of the cribs collapsed and killed a baby, so we helped them get a second chance, you know. And then a few months or a year or so after I left, another crew collapsed and killed another baby. The sense I generally got— Who didn't get a second chance. Yeah, who did, those babies yeah. did not get a second chance. The The general sense that I got was that people went to the crisis communications firm when it was cheaper than reforming your behavior to kind of spin your misbehavior. Um, I'm not, I don't think that's universally true, but I, I think in my experience, my limited experience, that's what was happening a lot. We're going to take a, a, a break, and we'll be right back with David Litt. Working at a crisis communications firm was sort of as far from uh, the hopey, changey Obama campaign as you could get in certain ways. It was totally the opposite. It could not have been less hopey or changey <laughs> um, because it, it was also an introduction to a part of Washington that I didn't know about. And the, as much as I knew about it, I just assumed we were going to change it. And when I say we, I mean the Obama movement. I figured, you know, these kind of clubby, backrooms, relationship-driven stuff that, you know, really shouldn't, isn't serving the American people. Well, now the right people are here, and so that's all going to go away. Um, and it, obviously it didn't. The, yeah, it was, it was, it was dispiriting. It doesn't justify exactly how I behaved, but it still, <laughs> it was still, uh, it was a disheartening moment. Yeah. You, you did wend your way, uh, uh, to the White House, eventually, you made a stop at West Wing Writers, a group of old White House speech writers who uh, write speeches and a lot of jokes uh, as well. And um, I actually think your resume came my way, uh, and I sent it to John Favreau in the White House, and you ended up there. Um, that must have been a head-turning kind of uh, turn of events for you. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I still never imagined that I would work in the White House. I had the reason you got my resume was that I was going to go to Chicago for the reelect and just unpack boxes until someone hired me to do something. I figured I would go back into field organizing. Mm -hmm. And I guess Jeff Shessel or Jeff Nussbaum or someone at one of West the Jeffs, Wing, yeah, yeah, one of the Jeffs at West Wing Writers, West Wing Writers yeah. uh, sent you my resume just so that I didn't show up literally not knowing anybody or you know anything about the place. 
And then because um, Valerie Jarrett was looking for a speechwriter and hadn't been able to find the right person, uh, I met with uh, with Favreau and um, basically he said, you know, if you want, you could just stay here and work in the White House and write speeches for Valerie. And I said, yeah, okay, you know, twist my arm. I could, <laughs> I could work in the White House if you want. And so um, it was not on my radar that I might get a job like that until about a week before I got that job. And it was totally surreal. I mean, I think it was surreal throughout, but the first six weeks or so, every time I, you know, flash my badge and they let me into the gate to go through security, I'd just be like, really? Did this, did someone make a mistake? I mean, this is not supposed to happen. So they obviously hadn't heard about your 21st birthday party. That's right. It was, well, the, the vetting was, you know, uh, it was pretty scary because there was somebody who was responsible for going back and looking at all of my old stand-up routines in the in the White House Counsel's office, and we she was on the softball team, and so like a year and a half later, you know, we were at a game, and she was like, "By the way, I saw all your your old stand-up routines." I'm like, "Oh God," um, I guess she thought they were like relatively funny and more importantly not too embarrassing, but. It's a weird thing to think that, you know, everything you've ever done, you start to think about, like, what if they find out about that? One of the things that was striking in your story as you wrote it was the collision between the idealism of the campaign and the reality of politics and government in Washington. Talk about that. The way I tried to capture it in the book in a sentence was that it it felt as magical as being Cinderella at the ball, but I also felt like Cinderella before the ball. Like, I have never worked that hard as I did in that moment. And it was, um, the way I always thought about it, it was there was a a once-in-a-lifetime experience once a week, sometimes more than once a week, which was incredible. And you got to be part of, it wasn't just cool, exciting things, it was that things that were exciting and thrilling and also part of this big thing that you really care about. Um, but also it was extraordinarily stressful. I don't, that's almost, that word doesn't really do the experience justice, I don't think. And one of the things, one of the reasons I sat down and wanted to write this book was that I felt like most White House books don't dive fully into just how, uh, anxiety provoking that kind of responsibility, even at a low level can be. And especially when you've never had a real job out of college and, you know, you wonder, you're, you wonder why someone's paying you to do anything at all, let alone work in the White House. And, and I wanted to um, write something that would speak to people who are, you know, 24 and just starting out in something that feels very big, because it was absolutely terrifying. I mean, for six weeks straight, I dreamt about work every night. I don't know whether this ever happened to you in your, uh, you know, at any point in your... Wait, so you got to sleep? Well, I did get to sleep, um, I, I, although I never admitted it. I always felt like in D.C., like people say, you know, how much do you sleep? And I would say, actually, you know, I try to get eight hours because it's important. And people would give me this look like you must not really be – you must not be that great. And yeah. so finally I'd just be like, no, nah, I'm never sleeping. But what I should have said is that I sleep, but I just relive the workday. Or even worse, I get to pre-live the following workday in my sleep in which I inevitably do something wrong. You know, leave out a pronunciation, leave the L out of the phrase public investment. I mean, something bad. And the, uh, you know, kind of have this moment where, and you wake up and you're exhausted from a full work day and you go back into work. And I remember talking to a friend who started the White House maybe two or three months after I did. And she said at one point, you know, it's weird. I've been dreaming about work every single night. And I was like, yeah, don't, you know, almost, almost like, all right, you're in the club. Don't worry. That happens to everybody. Yeah. You um, you actually lived a couple of those uh, episodes where you, uh, you wrote something and there were unintended consequences to it. One was a Thanksgiving message for the, for the president. Yeah, the first—well, not the first speech I wrote for the president, but the first videotaping that I wrote for him was for the Thanksgiving video address in 2011. And I, you know, spent— a ton of time, because to me, this was the most important thing Barack Obama was ever going to say. I mean, I I threw myself into this thing, but what I forgot was to mention either the word God or the word the Almighty in there. And to be fair, George W. Bush had also done that. He had left out God from, I think, five of eight Thanksgiving addresses. The Daily Show did the the research at some point. But uh, obviously, Fox News didn't really care when George W. Bush didn't mention God, but when Obama didn't mention God, it was a thing. 
And so it, it was my first experience, at least firsthand, with how quickly the right-wing media complex gets to work because I remember being at Thanksgiving with my family and it was sort of – everybody was very excited around the time the turkey was being served. And by the time dessert was out, this was already a controversy. Like it was already <laughs> a thing. And I saw the way that the mainstream press – I think I used the example of ABC News in the book – that they don't cover the thing because there's – this is a nonsense controversy, but they do cover the fact that people are upset about it. Right. So they cover the controversy, and then that becomes – that's how it worms its way into the mainstream media. And, you know, I think the – it wasn't a, a catastrophe. It wasn't like, you know, Thanksgiving was ruined for America forever. <laughs> but I do think that it was one of those moments when you realize you do something that seems small, but if you do it for the president, it's not small. And uh, that's true of everything. I mean, even – when your job is not to be in the inner circle. You ultimately uh, became sort of the head writer for the, the, one of the most noted speeches of the year for the president, which is the White House Correspondents' Dinner Speech, which is basically a comedy routine. But before you, uh, a couple of years before you took that responsibility over, also in 2011, you wrote a few jokes uh, for uh, what was probably his most famous speech because he took Donald Trump uh, out at that particular event in a, in a hilarious and brutal way. Uh, but you wrote a joke that didn't ultimately get delivered the way you wrote it. That year, uh, John Lovett was running the speechwriting process. He left a couple months after that. but So this was the last year he was in the White House for the Correspondence Center, and he was with Favreau. And I was pitching them jokes, and the joke was uh, about – the conspiracy theories about the president and specifically about his middle name, the president's middle name. And so the joke was uh, Tim Pawlenty, the 2012 Republican candidate. He sounds all American, but do you know his real middle name? It's Tim Bin Laden Pawlenty. And I thought this was going to be a great joke. I saw that it would have made it into the yeah. draft, which was a big deal for me. First of all, the fact that I could even see the drafts made me feel very excited and very cool and insidery, um, even though I wasn't in, in the meetings or anything. And I thought this was going to be an edgy joke. Bin Laden sound, you know, it, it has a ring to it. Um, not a good person, but really nice sounding phrase. And so I thought this was going to be a great joke. And then uh, Lovett and, and Favreau and you, I think. I was in the meeting. Right. Yeah. We were in that meeting. Uh, yeah, I've read about this from your perspective as well before I wrote about it from mine. We fought for your joke, oh, man. Oh, did you? Okay. Yes, well, we I'm, fought I'm for glad your to joke. hear that. The president said, no, nah, Bin Laden, Bin Laden, that's so yesterday, he said. <laughs> and we we're like, what are you talking about yesterday? And he said, no, no, change it. And uh, and it was Lovett who said, well, we can throw in, you know, Hosni. And yeah. uh, that's how it came out. And, and it was like, that's not funny. <laughs> that's how it went. Yeah. Well, that's I remember seeing the new draft that had Hosni in it. And Hosni also just as a word is not – it's just not a funny word. Right. And so I remember thinking I'm the new guy. And I know that probably, you know, I shouldn't be weighing in and making a stink about everything. But, like, the White House needs my opinion. America needs me to <laughs> tell them how wrong they were to change my joke. So I got my BlackBerry out, and I had a whole email ready to go. And uh, it was it was like I had a little bureaucratic angel just sitting on my shoulder saying, you know, stay in your lane. Yes. And I did I did that. I didn't hit send on the email. And the the next night, obviously, uh, after the Correspondence Center, the next day I went to a music festival with some friends and was coming back when I got uh, on the final draft of the speech that Ben Rhodes wrote uh, about, you know, on the death of Osama bin Laden <laughs> and had this moment of like, oh, I am very glad I did not hit send on that email the night before. Because the president knew at the time he cut your joke that he had given the order that would that would kill bin Laden, uh, that he had authorized the mission to get bin Laden so he didn't want that joke in the in the routine. Right. And what's what's I mean everybody remembers that routine for the Trump jokes, which they should. Those were pretty pretty brutal and amazing. But the other thing that I remember about that dinner was that Seth Meyers told a joke about bin Laden about where bin Laden was hiding. Do you remember this? That the joke was like yes. you know, they say he's in the Hindu Kush but really hosts a show on C SPAN every night or something yeah, like that. Yeah, right. And they cut to the president. And even now if you go back and watch President Obama in that moment and you know that he knows, you still couldn't tell. I mean it was a yeah. pretty remarkable it was performance. Because he couldn't in any way intimate that something 
something was afoot. Uh, you also wrote, obviously, serious speeches for the president. And you were there during um, uh, some really challenging times. What were the most what were, what were the most difficult emotional speeches that you helped on or that you wrote when you worked for him? And I ask you that because uh, in this past uh, in these past days, we've seen uh, this unspeakable tragedy in Las Vegas. The president obviously has had. President Obama had to address a number of these mass uh, shootings. I didn't do any of the speeches directly after a mass shooting. I watched, you know, so those were mostly done by Cody, Cody Keenan, Keenan, who yes. was the chief speechwriter in the second term, or Terry Zuplat, who was his deputy. And I sort of watched them go through that process. But it was – what was interesting, and I think to the president's credit – was the the turn that happened in the second term where we mostly in the second term where we had always spoken about tragedies and and empathy for victims and completely sincerely and we continued to do that but i i saw this also another part of a change that was not just about reflecting on the last tragedy but thinking about the next one and certainly this week after this awful shooting in in las vegas one of the things that it made me really miss from a president is some leadership, not just on comforting the bereaved, but also about thinking about what can we do as a country to keep this from happening again, and and recognizing that some of it is some of the tragedy is the, obviously the people who are dead or injured and and their families who are who lost a loved one. Some of the tragedy, I think now, and here I'm just speaking personally. But I think that some of the tragedy is that every time this happens, Americans everywhere wonder, am I next? Is someone I love next? And we know that this is going to happen again because we're not doing anything about it. And and the fact that we're constantly afraid in our own country, I mean, there is something tragic about that too. And I think dealing with bo- dealing with the full scope of the tragedy was not easy. And it's one of those moments where you miss having a president who's capable of it. Although the president, uh, President Obama, was not able to move the Congress uh, to act on the on on guns, and there were several other issues on which uh, he w- wasn't successful, and there were several issues that he confronted that weren't anticipated, uh, that uh, left you feeling disappointed. You're pretty clear in this book that you had moments of disillusionment. Absolutely. So, to me, the first really difficult moment where I thought, you know, I don't think we got this one right. And again, it's not like I was 25. So I, you know, I, I, I'm no, very careful about writing a, a book and saying, they like, obviously forgot to ask. Yeah. You. Someone should have asked me. Yeah. No. I, so it, that is like, there's a little bit of a, by definition, an impudence in saying, well, you know, uh, I don't think we got this right. But and yet I, you and many others were shareholders in this enterprise. Right. I, and I think that everybody has, if you're a citizen in a democracy, and certainly if you're working full-time in public service, you have some obligation to think critically about what's going on, but also some obligation to be humble and recognize that most of the time when I was pretty sure I was right, it turns out I was not. So, But uh, the debt ceiling fight mm-hmm. in 2011, that was a moment when I felt like we were – you know, I, I felt like I watched this happen. For me, I knew something bad was going on when I no longer had any speeches to write. Because at the time I was writing for the senior staff, and when the senior staff wasn't giving any speeches, that meant they were doing more important things. And what happened was the, 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 there was a standoff with Congress. There was a threat to maybe breach the debt ceiling. It never had been done before. would have created a, a huge crisis, and the president was forced to deal with Congress uh, and cut the budget in ways that many, uh, many – he among them didn't want to do. Yeah, and I don't know – what the right choice there would have been. I do think that two years later when Congress tried the same thing with the debt ceiling and the government shut down and President Obama said, we're not going to negotiate with hostage takers. If you do this, it's on your head. Um, And I think that was effective. And I'm glad we did it that way the second time. Um, But I think in that moment it was – this is the conclusion that I sort of came to frequently and I thought was important throughout my time at the White House, which is – Everybody there is a human being that when I was on that plane in 2008 watching President Obama, I don't think I really thought that he was somehow like 
above being mortal, but I kind of did. I mean, he used to say on the campaign, as you well know... I'm uh, not a perfect man. Right. I'm not a perfect man, and I won't make a, be a perfect president. And I used to think that's exactly what a perfect man would say. You know, that, <laughs> so therefore he will be a perfect president. <laughs> and, um, and, and realizing that he was right. I mean, that I, I have extraordinary, not just respect, but I, I'm... I, I mean, I just feel so honored that I got to work for someone like that, because I do think he's an extraordinary person. But you also realize that even extraordinary people are people. And, you know... Well, uh, and beyond which, uh, some of the challenges of Washington and some of the challenges of the world don't yield easily to any force. Exactly. And, and change doesn't always come in gushes. It comes... Uh, in increments, and that's unsatisfying. Right. I And I think, and, and it comes in increments, and it comes despite the fact that all of us will make mistakes at our jobs. I mean, I most of the, my book is about mistakes I made at my job, most of which were not super consequential, some of which were. But it's impossible for a movement to always execute flawlessly. And if we take every backslide or every mistake and as a reason to give up, on the movement, then that's that's the, ultimately the enemy to, of progress. I think you you wrote a very poignant uh, uh, addendum to your book after the election of uh, Donald Trump and before the book was uh, published. Um, and at the end of the day, um, it was it was an upbeat uh, close. So how in this era of Trump? Uh, do you now now thirty, not the twenty one year old kid riding naked in Rhode Island? How how do you find that sense of encouragement? Well, one thing watching President Obama, not necessarily personally all the time, but but working for him for years, you do try to see some of those traits and he, his relentless optimism. I do think, as somebody who's not by nature either an optimist or a pessimist, I can go either way. But I do admire that about him, and I try to think about that. And I remember after the election, um, someone I had worked with on the senior staff sent around an email and said, for everybody, for most of the people you know, whether or not you had an important White House job or a, or a less important White House job, you will be the person people look to to know how they should feel about stuff like this. And so you have an obligation to be an optimist. Um, so that's one thing is is kind of being surrounded by – optimists, you know, dogged optimists for a long time. The other reason that I'm an optimist these days is I think I'm, I'm a sort of long-term optimist. I am not, um, the difference between maybe where I would have been in 2008 and who I am now is that I don't think this is going to get better quickly. I think it may get worse in the near term, but I think in the long term it will get better. And we can shorten the amount of time it takes before things start to improve if we work at it. So I think that's the the challenge is I mean to me there's that is not um that's not disappointing I mean that's that's life and part of it is thinking about how is it that we can simultaneously be disillusioned and still believe in something and I think when I came, first moved to DC for sure I was a believer in that idea that there was a continuum where belief and faith was on one side and disillusionment is on the other and today I would say I'm both disillusioned and a believer. And I think some of that is what it means to – that's what it really means to love a country or love a person or love a president is to understand their flaws and admit – understand that they have faults but also believe anyway. And I think that was – to me that's the – you know, it is a cliche at the end of a book to say it's really a love story – but I hope that by the end it's a cliche that I've earned because I think it became a book about what it really means to love a political hero, what it means to love – I mean my fiancé, for most of the book, my girlfriend, plays a sort of – plays a role in the book. Um, you know, Obviously America plays a role in the book. That's where this whole thing is happening. So <laughs> uh, what does that kind of adult love look like as opposed to that kind of early crush that I had on – the young woman I rode naked with from the Rhode Island primary or that immediate falling in love feeling I had with uh, President Obama, then candidate Obama, which was amazing and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it wasn't sustainable for years and years and years. It, those things can't last forever and you have to figure out how to build something more lasting. Well, it's a great book. Thanks, Obama. Uh, 
what's the subtext? What's the what's the my Hopi changey? Oh, my Hopi changey White House years because yeah. that's uh, you right, know, Sarah right. Palin's. Let line. me do that yeah, over please. again. It's uh, it's a great book. Thanks, Obama. My Hopi changey White House years. Uh, highly recommended. It's it's funny and it's incisive, and as you point out, it's optimistic. So, David Litt, always good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being at the Institute of Politics. All right. Thank you so much. This means a lot that you would have me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.